Um, we're in Exodus chapter 33, and that's page 89 in the Green Bibles. Um, and just as you're finding your page, um, if you haven't been here over the past couple of weeks, we've been tracing the covenant thread through the Old Testament, and we've been looking at God's faithfulness and his sovereignty and his holiness. And this evening, as we land in the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus, we're going to be pressing into what it means to be a people of presence, a people marked by the presence of God. So let's read Exodus 33 together starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to you, to your descendants. And then moving to verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. And then verses 4 to 6, the Israelites uh, mourn because the Lord has said that he will not go with them. And then moving to uh, verse 15, then Moses said to him, and that's the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that you're good, that you pursue us, that you love us, and as we are marked by your presence, we are your hands and feet in this world. So will you speak to us by your word and in the power of your spirit this evening, conforming us more and more to your likeness. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I'm sure if you've been a Christian for a while, you've met a few people who kind of shine with the presence of God. Often they are um, slightly older than most of us in this room um, because they've kind of walked a long walk with the Lord. And as I was reflecting on what it means to be kind of a person of presence, a Christian who so carries the presence of God that it just shines around them. Um, I remembered um, when I was about 11 years old, and I was reading a book called Chasing the Dragon by a missionary called Jackie Pullinger, who I'm sure some of you uh, may have heard of. And I got really captivated by kind of Jackie and her life. Um, basically, at 23, she'd gone on a boat and just said, God, tell me uh, when to get off. Um, God didn't tell her, so she got to the end of the boat, and it was Hong Kong, so she got off in Hong Kong, um, and then had an extraordinary ministry over sort of 10 years and well beyond as um, this kind of walled city, this ghettoized area um, that was beyond the reach of the law, full of drug addicts and prostitutes, as these people began to uh, come to faith and miraculously come off drugs. Um, and as it turned out, um, Jackie's twin sister was, in fact, a family friend. So she came to, um, to my church to speak. And I remember at the age of 11 being like, Dad, can I go to the evening service and meet Jackie? And he was like, okay, cool. Um, and I went to meet Jackie. And this woman is fierce, <laughs> she is direct, if you've ever come across her. But she just shone with this holiness. She was this person of presence as she got to know the Lord, as she poured her life out for the kingdom of God. And I just said to her, you know, what should I do? And she just looked at me and said, be a woman of God. Be a woman of God, which I'm attempting to achieve as I uh, go through my life. And so we're all called to be people of presence and to cultivate the presence of God, just as Moses cried to the Lord, actually, what else will distinguish us? What else will mark us out? 
from everybody else on the face of this earth. But let's step um, back to, for a moment into this sort of covenant thread that we've been looking at. Can we just flip to the first slide, please? And the next slide. We've done that already. Let's Cool. Brilliant. Okay, so we've been sort of saying that um, the story of the Old Testament is the story of God pursuing us, which then goes right through into the New Testament as God kind of finally chases us, finally gets hold of us, finally redeems us in the person of Jesus. And so the covenant is God's mechanism throughout the Old Testament that is then fulfilled in the New to call us to himself. So in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's covenant creation. God creates the world. He creates us. He says, actually, I'm a relational, loving God. I open out. I want to create you. I know you by name. I call you to myself. And of course, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall occurs, and there's a separation between humankind and God. But actually, God doesn't just give up on us then, does he? He says, actually, I am faithful. I'm sovereign. I will pursue you. And so in Genesis chapter 6, he kind of begins this uh, salvation rescue plan in the first covenant with Noah, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And then in Genesis chapter 12 and uh, 3 to 15, which Tim spoke to last week, um, he reaffirms the covenant with Abraham, with Abraham's descendants, with a people that he will call to himself. And then this evening, we come to the third covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And there's something incredibly unique about the Mosaic Covenant in that it is marked by the presence of God in a new and permanent way. And it is pointing forward to our reality as spirit-filled Christians with the power of the living God living inside of us. And so Exodus, glorious book, super, super rich. What's going on in Exodus? Well, I got out my Blue Peter badge, which I never actually got, and I made a really, really dodgy visual aid here. <laughs> um, and Exodus kind of takes place. Oh, horror fell over already. It did that this morning. Um, Exodus kind of um, oscillates between two geographical areas. So there's Mount Sinai, which is the place of the presence of God. And then there is Mount Horeb. Yes, stay. Wonderful. Um, which is the pla uh, place of kind of normality. And so the narrative of Exodus finds us very often in Horeb and Moses every now and again in Sinai. So chapters 1, 3 to 23 are the kind of narrative of the story. They tell us about the calling of Moses, uh, the rescue of the people in um, Egypt called the Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the way that um, we live well on this earth. And then chapters 24 to 31 take place on Sinai as Moses goes up to Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on stone tablets and receives the covenant afresh in a deep and new and permanent way. And then we hit chapter 32, just before what we um, have read this evening. And we see this incident of the golden calf. And the Israelites are camped at the base of Horeb. And essentially they get bored. Moses is up on Sinai, communing with God, sorting out the covenant for them. And they kind of go, we don't know what's happened to this guy. He's not coming back from Sinai. Maybe he'll just stay up there with God. And so they turn to Aaron, who is their kind of interim leader, and they say, actually, make us a God. We want a physical God to worship. And so they take off their jewelry, 
and they make the golden calf. And they start to worship this golden calf, who is no god at all, of course. And then Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and he sees what's going on, and he is furious. And the Lord is furious, and he smashes the the stone tablets, because idolatry is going on. And actually, Sinai is the mountain of the Lord, a holy, holy God. And God, our holy, awesome, majestic king, cannot bear sin, cannot bear idolatry. And so that's how we land in Exodus chapter 33. Actually, it's Moses wrestling with the Lord for his people. It's Moses standing in the gap and saying, don't leave us, don't leave us. And then chapters 34 through to 40 tell a story of miraculous restoration as the Lord's presence does go with his people. But just turning to these two mountains now. So Horeb here. It's really beautiful, isn't it? The things I can make. You know. um, Horeb is this place of real normality and real wrestling. It kind of just represents the everyday reality of the Christian life, the Christian walk. So it's a place where Moses is called in the burning bush. It's a place where Israel are encamped and spend a lot of their time in the book of Exodus. It's a place of the golden calf when they get it really, really wrong. It's also the turning point where Moses cries out to the Lord, on behalf of the people of Israel. But meanwhile, Sinai is that kind of mountaintop experience. It's the place of covenant blessing and encounter. Every time Moses goes up Mount Sinai, he meets the presence of the living God and something remarkable happens. And chapter 33 is pivotal in the text and pivotal theologically because it's the final time that Horeb looks to Sinai and by the end of the chapter something truly, truly unique occurs. So verse 3, I will not go with you, I will not go with them, some of the saddest verses in scripture because God in his sovereign holiness cannot abide the sin that has occurred in chapter 32. Actually, his presence is his holiness. You cannot have his presence without his holiness. That is what is screaming out in the book of Exodus. In Leviticus, God just says to us, be holy as I am holy. His presence is about his holiness. And in verses uh, 4 to 6, the people mourn. They finally, finally realize what the result of their sin is. That actually it's just not worth it. Because the only thing that is worth anything is being a people of God's presence. It's that intimate, intimate relationship that is found between the living God and the people that he so, so loves. So Moses steps in. And he wrestles and he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up. Because what else will distinguish us? The only thing that distinguishes us is the presence of the living God. 
And then the Lord turns to Moses in verse 17, and he says, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. One man's righteousness results in the salvation of a whole people group. And that sounds a bit like someone we know, doesn't it? Actually, Moses, so often, the book of Exodus is a precursor of all that Jesus will finally do for us on the cross in the new covenant. And then what occurs after Moses is wrestled? What occurs after the Lord says, okay, my presence will go with you, is incredibly significant. Because Moses goes up to Sinai for the last time, and the covenant's renewed, and there are sort of ten new stone tablets. But the Lord then says, I will come off this Mount Sinai. I will come down this mountain to my people. And Sinai comes to Horeb. The presence of the living God, the Lord Almighty, comes to dwell permanently with his people. The people build an ark where the Ten Commandments will go. They build the tent of meeting, the place of worship. It's portable presence. It's the presence of God traveling with them wherever they go, as they go and take the land of Cana, as they build the temple in the books to come. Sinai comes to dwell with Horeb, and everything changes, because it's a people marked permanently by the presence of God. Actually, as we get to the end of Exodus chapter 40, it just says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud that settled upon it and the glory of the Lord that filled the tabernacle. Actually, the glory of the Lord was so huge and so profound that Moses, who had been going up Mount Sinai, meeting with the Lord face to face, even he could not come in. The presence of the living God had come in power, never to be distinguished, never to be extinguished even, not distinguished, that's us. Gordon Fee puts it like this. He just says, the divine presence lost in Eden is now restored as a central feature of Israel's existence. Actually, what had gone wrong in Genesis chapter 3, when sin separated us from God, is now being restored in a new and permanent way. Actually, God is saying, I will commune with my people. I will be a presence God. I will be there every step of the way. The divine presence, the divine image is being restored. The people of God are called into something new. So what is his presence? What is the presence of God? Well, the presence of God is God. It's him. It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's marked by his desire for us. We do not worship a remote God. We worship a God who is Emmanuel, God with us. We worship a God who is Holy Spirit, God dwelling within us. We worship a God who longs for us, who steps close to us, who comes off Mount Sinai despite our sin and dwells with us in Horeb. It's marked by his power. Actually, throughout Exodus, there's this kind of fire motif 
It's the burning bush. It's a pillar of fire that descends on a tent of meeting. For us, it's the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on in power on every believer. Power of the living God. But it's also marked by his holiness. Be holy as I am holy. We cannot have his presence without his holiness. And for too long in the church, I think sometimes, we have longed for the presence of God and we cried out for that, for the warm fuzzies. But we haven't wanted his holiness that much because that bit can be kind of costly and kind of hard. Actually, our God is not a teddy bear. He's a sovereign God almighty. He's Shekinah glory. He's a king above all kings. He's the lion of Judah. He's God with us. I think C.S. Lewis uh, gets it right in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the um, pensive children are going to see Aslan. Aslan represents uh, Jesus. And they just say to the beavers, is he safe? And the beavers look at them and say, of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. Our God is fundamentally good. And he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. But he is not safe. And he's not a teddy bear. And yes, he wants to restore us. And yes, he wants to fill us with love and compassion and hold us close. But he wants to fill us with fire. And he wants us to come into his presence with holy awe, ready to be conformed into his likeness, ready to be changed. Because he is the God of Sinai who has chosen out of his relational love, out of his faithfulness to dwell with us in Horeb. So who are we as these presence people? Well, actually, we're not in the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Covenant. The New Testament cries out that we're under a new covenant. And if we're under a new covenant, how much more are we carriers of God's presence than the people of Israel? There's a kind of thread that goes through the Old Testament and into the New, and it's the veil thread. So that when um, Moses went up Mount Sinai and came down, his face was so radiant with the glory of the Lord that the Israelites couldn't even look at him. So Moses had to put a veil over his face. And then when they were building the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle, the place of meeting, the place of worship, Actually, God's presence was so huge, was so awe-inspiring that they had to put a veil over the tent of meeting. You couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. God was there and present, but there was still a veil between humankind and God. And then you get to Matthew 27. And what happens? As Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. It says that the veil in the temple was torn. Torn. This veil that had been there between humankind and God was torn in the person of Jesus. And we, all of us, with unveiled faces, are welcomed in to the presence of the living God daily, minute by minute, moment by moment. His Shekinah glory, his presence is amongst us. It's here right now. It's here on a Wednesday afternoon. It's here on a Friday morning. It's not going anywhere. He's God 
with us. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, actually, we all, with unveiled faces, as ministers of this new covenant, we boldly approach the throne of God. Boldly approach it. Because we know who we are. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the new covenant. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul just writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. We're the temple. It's no longer the tabernacle made for the Israelites. Actually, something unique has happened. We're the temple. The Holy Spirit, the power of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within each and every one of us. And somehow we don't implode or explode. That's extraordinary. Guys, we run around this earth. We run around our daily lives as carriers of his presence. As his hands and feet on this earth, empowered. We need to remember that. That we're present people. Tim was saying last week that actually we probably don't even know what effect we're having. Just as we're at work, as we're at home, as we're socializing in the bar. When we walk into a room, the atmosphere changes because you walk in with the presence of the living God. You are different. Whether you feel it or think it, you are fundamentally. You are the tabernacle. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is also a gentleman. He's a relational God who made us and gave us free will. And so we can choose to cultivate his presence. We can choose to cultivate his holiness. We can choose to come before him and say, okay, God, I want to be a person who so shines, so shines. Just do that in me, however costly. Or we can keep walking with him. And our salvation is secure, and we are presence carriers. But there might just be a little bit more that he wants to do with each and every one of us. There might be a little bit more that he wants to do with you. Where his presence is, his holiness is. And his holiness conforms us more and more into his likeness. So what does holiness look like? Well, it looks like obeying his word first and foremost. And his word isn't something that's legalistic or to bind us up in chains. Actually, it's true, true freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the spirit of the Lord is in this living word. He's the potter and we're the clay. He knows how he made us. And so what he has written here for us That's how we flourish. That's how we live this life well. Because he made us for freedom. But freedom is found in his word and doing it his way, not doing our way. When we look at the culture, we're called to be prophets, not conformists. We're called to say there is a different way and it is the better way. And sometimes it feels costly and immediate, but my goodness, it is worth it. And so we come to him, we spend time in his word, we dwell with him. Holiness looks like us coming and saying, okay, God, conform me, change me, however costly 
it is. It means spending time on Sinai, spending time here in church with friends, at Christian conferences, whatever you need to do. But spending time on Sinai, not so that we can just have some like knees up for Jesus that makes us feel really good, but so that we're changed and we live in Horeb in a better way as carriers of his presence, marked so significantly by him. And can I suggest that holiness also starts in the small decisions that we make? Actually, our culture tells us that the small things don't really matter. Just brush that off. Just leave that at the door. And that's not true. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your whole life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. As we invite God into the small decisions, they begin to add up and we're conformed into his likeness. We're a holy, holy people. And so we're presence people, being a holy people. And finally, we need to humbly know what distinguishes us. Actually, the more I read the Bible, the more I realize that I'm not special, and neither are you. I mean, we're special in the eyes of God, and we're loved, and we're cherished, and we're restored, and we're redeemed. But we're not special in a kind of Oprah Winfrey self-help book kind of a way. She were just cracked pots. It's only his presence that distinguishes us. Not how clever we are or how good looking we are or how good our job is. It's only him. And actually the kingdom is topsy-turvy. Paul just says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he gives us this image of treasures in jars of clay. He says, actually, you, you are a jar of clay, and the treasure within you is the Holy Spirit. And what he's getting at there is essentially that we're kind of an ugly, cracked pot. Um, in Paul's world, um, houses didn't have sort of burglar alarms or locks or anything like that. So people would literally hide their most precious belongings, their treasure, in an ugly pot and leave it on the side somewhere and hope that if they got burgled or a robber came, they wouldn't find the treasure. Because why would you put treasure in an ugly jar? And what Paul is saying there is actually, we in our very human form are just these kind of crap pots. But somehow, God, the living God, decides to use us. Decides to place himself within us so that we hold treasure in jars of clay. Just look at the people God uses. Actually, Moses couldn't even speak. At the burning bush, he's a gibbering wreck. And God doesn't kind of massage his ego or anything like that. He just says, I am with you. Joshua, when he goes to take the land with the Israelites, actually God doesn't give him a giant army or anything like that. He says, just be strong and courageous. I am with you. Paul, who writes all this stuff, half the New Testament, 
actually I come in weakness and trembling. I'm in prison. I'm whiplashed. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And actually, in southwest London, when we're quite a gifted, quite a sort of talented group of people, we need to humbly know what distinguishes us. Not so that we have a low self-esteem, that's nonsense, that's lies from Satan, but so that we're excited about who we really are and so that the glory goes exactly where it should go, to the one and true living God, not to ourselves. The only thing that distinguishes us is the presence of God and through the dignity of inclusion, the living God has said, actually, I choose you guys. I choose you. Run with this. And my presence will go with you. And because my presence is with you, you're dynamite. But I ask you to be holy as I am holy. Because I've entrusted this treasure in jars of clay. Amen. Amen.